0: All All right. We'll see there questions for the end. Okay. We don't have the whole
1: song, so. Well, I'll call this meeting to order here. We've got a few more coming, but what we'll do is we'll gather together here, and we'll begin with prayer. What I'm going to do is have the questions held to the end because of our recording device. What we'll do is we will shut that off, and then we'll handle questions at the end because it's difficult to pick up the questions anyway. So that's the way we'll handle it. So let's just begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our evening together. We thank you that we can sit under means of grace as a church and learn more about your word, and also we can learn more about you even through the general revelation. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us think well upon these concepts so that we would be prepared to give an answer to all those who ask us for the reason for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray for our time together that you would bless it We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, this is night two. We're going to be looking at theism and rationality. Now, remember, last week we had proved the existence of God. And so this week what we're going to do is we're going to still finish that section, but we're going to move in to proving that atheism, yes, is irrational, but so is monism. Monism is the Encompassing belief system of the Eastern religions. We're going to declare that that also is an irrational worldview. And so, what we're going to come away with this evening, my prayer, is that you'll see theism is the only way to, if you hold that worldview, that's the only way that you can have a rational worldview. If you're an atheist, you have an irrational worldview. If you hold to any form of an Eastern religion, you hold to an irrational worldview. Now, at the end of the day, our goal is not simply to prove theism. It is to bring out the Bible. We know in Romans 10, 17, Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by defeating Darwinian evolution. No, it's hearing by the word of Christ, isn't it? So that's where we must go. Now, I'm going to be handing the ball off to Dana Birkenshaw next week. He's going to do four messages about proving that the God that we've just announced is real and exists, he is going to prove that it is, in fact, the God of the Bible. So he'll be proving the truth claims of biblical Christianity in four sessions. So that's the sequence that I would like to see Christians typically use in evangelism. You might have to start with proving a basic worldview, but then you always want to go to the scriptures and say, Who is this God? Let me introduce you to him. Here he is. He's in Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I want to begin by doing a little bit of a review where we left off last time. Recall when we looked at proving the existence of God, I gave two proofs that I like to use. The first proof was the cosmological argument. That's the one that I go to first. I think it's the most effective. Why? Because it yields necessary conclusions. Okay. Now, I'll review what that is later in the message. But the second argument that we gave, or proof, was the teleological argument. Remember we talked about how that term, telos, is a Greek term that means design. And so what we're doing is we're showing that there must be design, and therefore a designer. So let me just remind you of the syllogism that we used last time. Premise one, all things designed must have a designer. That's self-evident to most people. Premise two... The universe is a thing that was designed, and therefore our conclusion is what? The universe must have a designer. Now remember, if this isn't a valid logical format, and it is, if we can conclude that our two premises are true, the conclusion is necessarily true. Now I think premise one is self-evident to most people. All things that are designed must have a designer. Otherwise, they're not designed, right? But the real debate is premise two. The universe, is that a thing that was designed or not? That's what we want to prove. And so we began last week by looking at design through astronomy. And now, this evening, we're going to start looking at design through physics and chemistry and also microbiology. The beautiful thing about looking at microbiology is not only can we show design, but we also can take a whack at macroevolution. And so we get a twofer out of that one. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at physics, chemistry, and microbiology. And just one example from all of those things. And I want to begin by handing it off to Bob. Bob DeWay was a former chemical engineering student, correct? University, or I'm sorry, Iowa State University.
0: No, not the University of Iowa. That's for the
1: liberals. Oh, <laughs> I stand corrected. Well, here, I'll have you come up here, Bob. Okay. And I'll hand the mic off to you. He's going to show us design from this heme molecule. Good evening.
0: I'm very honored to be asked to share a little bit of my testimony. And uh, by making it personal, I think you'll see that this isn't just some academic exercise as far as apologetics, but real people come to faith by seeing that the God of the Bible does exist. In March of 1971, I was a sophomore at Iowa State University studying chemical engineering. One of the required classes that I had to take for a whole year, three different quarters, was was, uh, organic chemistry. And by the spring, now this was March of 1971, We were doing a little bit, just a little bit of biochemistry. And so I have a molecule diagrammed here that's the heme molecule. Now, there's a story for me behind this molecule. I had a problem in March of 1971, and that problem was that my fiancé had come to Christ I had already jettisoned the church because I grew up in a church given over to theological liberalism. I wasn't a conservative Christian. I just was wanting to know what I ought to believe. But when I found out the pastor teaching the youth didn't believe in the truth of the Bible himself, it offended me that I was expected to learn what the pastor himself didn't even believe and then swear to it to join the church. So I revolted against the church because they were, in a sense, teaching absurdities and told me that the reason I should stay in the church was to be a better person. So I thought I can be a better person my own way. But through the witness of some solid Christians, my Who's now my wife, Diane, but then my fiance and her family had come to Christ. So she started telling me about Christ. That really made me angry. And I was thinking, well, this is this just isn't gonna work out. I just got engaged and now my fiance's a religious fanatic. So March 1971. I come into organic chemistry class and the professor, this was the big lecture hall, this is the top guy, and there was over 300 students there, and he was using. this was back in the days of the chalkboard, and up on the board he had placed this heme molecule. Notice the iron atom, if you know anything about the chemical symbols in the center and then surrounded by nitrogen and then These carbon bonds. What we were learning was carbon-carbon bonding. And the unique property, excuse me, the unique properties of carbon are such that it can bond various ways, and therefore it serves as the foundation stone for life. Okay, remember on Star Trek, they used to talk about carbon-based life forms? Well, that's really what we are, if you look at it from that perspective. So he puts this up there for us to look at, and then he turns around and says to this giant lecture hall that if one of the bonding, and the bonding would be the little lines between the molecules, if one of these were different, we'd all be dead. And he says the reason we'd all be dead is that this heme molecule is designed to carry oxygen to the cells. And it has to be just like this for oxygen to attach to it and then be able to be released as it's needed at the level of the cells of the body. I remember exactly where I was sitting remember what the lecture hall was like because this was a crucial moment in my life so I'd been arguing about religion with Diane and I remember thinking instantaneously evolution is a lie God exists and God created created us I wasn't a Christian But I was a theist. I believed in God, which is a step in the right direction. And it was because of this design that I could see. And it was absurd to think something like this could have just happened by chance or through evolution. Well, that was March 1971. It was July of 71 that I became a born-again Christian. And I think we need to give people the facts. Our, ki- our kids and college students need to know the truth is with us in Christianity.
1: You know, Bob, um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. You know what I always find so touching? I'll just, uh, I won't get too gooey on you here, but um, so you got to get this on first. One thing that's always been moving to me. Sure this is this. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, just keep talking.
1: One thing that's always been moving to me is think about how, Bob, you came to be a theist by studying the blood, and for 40 years after you became a believer, shortly after that, you've been preaching about the blood. (laughs) And uh, I think that there's something preachable about that, Bob. So thank you for sharing this with us. And again, what we're seeing here is design. Any molecule or car, or uh, how did you put it? Any. Yeah, the the,
0: the carbon-carbon bonding.
1: Yeah, with the lines there. If those are out of place at all, life is impossible. We don't have oxygen to ourselves. So there you have design and chemistry. And again, what we're saying is the design presupposes what? A designer. And again, this is our add-on argument. We've already proven the existence of God through the cosmological argument. This is all just further reinforcement of that idea. Now, let me turn to physics And I know that none of us are physicists in here. I'm not either. But these are things that I think the basic concepts we can all understand. There's a principle that Einstein was working on called the cosmological constant. Now, back in the early 1900s, the prevailing view of physicists was that the universe was static. It was not expanding. And so one of the ways that they had to envision this universe is being static as they thought in empty space there must be something some energy or gravitational pull that kind of keeps it in a static fashion well we later find out that it's not static it's moving but that even reinforces more that there's a need for energy in empty space and so the cosmological constant is the energy density of empty space now in this next quote you'll see why that's important and how it points to design I'm going to give you a quote from a man named Steven Weinberg. This man is not a believer. He is an agnostic. However, he gives a quotation where he's very honest and says, look, this, is, this cosmological constant is extremely precise. If it were any different than what it is, even slightly, either negative or positive, life would be impossible. So Steven Weinberg, here he is the Nobel physicist, looks into what he says. He says, regarding this number, he says, quote, if large and positive, the cosmological constant would act as a repulsive force that increases with distance, a force that would prevent matter from clumping together in the early universe, the process that was the first step in forming galaxies and stars and planets and people. If large and negative, the cosmological constant would act as an attractive force increasing with distance, a force that would almost immediately reverse the expansion of the universe and cause it to collapse." Unquote. Now I've seen a diagram of this and the point is if this cosmological constant was any different whether it be negative or positive you would either have a solar system in a universe where you could not have planets that ever came together they wouldn't have the gravitational pull to do so or it would immediately, if it was the other way, contract and you would never have had any expansion. Everything would. We'd all be compact into something that small, okay? So either you wouldn't have any planets at all, or we'd be very small people, okay? We'd all fit in the size of a marble. Life is impossible. And so, in fact, there's a Christian, this is a believer now, he's a physicist, his name is Robin Collins. He earned his Ph.D. of physics in University of Texas, Austin. Listen to what he said. He said, the fine-tuning aspect of this cosmological constant is one part and 100 million, billion, 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 billion. That's 10 times 53 zeros. Or put it another way, he gives this analogy. He said, if, to, to explain how narrow this number has to be, if it changes at all, you're dead. He says it's like sitting on a moon, on the moon 250,000 miles away, and having a dart and throwing it at the earth and trying to hit a particle and he says this, quote, that's a bullseye that's one trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. He says that's less than the size of one solitary atom, unquote. In other words, this constant, this energy constant in the universe, if it was, again, any different, either the universe would either collapse or we'd never have the planets that we do. He's saying it's that precise. If you changed it at all, We're dead. What does that point? It points to a put-up job. This was designed. And that's exactly what Bob saw in chemistry. That's what we see in astronomy. That's what we see in microbiology. It's all over the place. Why? Because there's a designer. Now, let me uh, move on. And again, we'll take questions at the end. I'm going to show you design in microbiology. The reason I'm excited about microbiology is because we get to refute macroevolution. So not only can we say positively, there's design and therefore a designer, but we also can say negatively macroevolution is untrue. Now, let's remind ourselves of some categories. When we talk about evolution, there's two different kinds. There is microevolution, and when we're talking about microevolution, we're talking about the differences in kinds, maybe at the species level, maybe at the genus level, but what we're talking about is you can have a dog that has variation within it. You can have a chihuahua, and you can have a great Dane. That's a lot of variation, but they're the same kind. They're a dog. All right? Um, you have people with green eyes or blue eyes or brown eyes. That's variation, but they're still human beings. They're the same kind. That we believe, as Christians, is acceptable science. We understand that that's uh, the data. We have no problems with that. But, no pun intended, a completely different animal is macroevolution. And that believes the people who hold to this that you can have... Kinds change into different kinds. Okay, so those who hold to macroevolution would say, well, either at the species or perhaps the genus level, you can have one form turn into another gradually. This is the idea of going from amoeba to man, or the old joke is from goo to you by the way of the zoo. Okay? (laughs) So the idea would be then you have one animal that gradually over time through mutations that enable it to adapt to its environment and reproduce, it would pass on those variations and it would become a new species or part of a new genus. What we're saying here is there's no evidence for that. None. It's not in the fossil record, and it's not found in biochemistry. Now, the reason I think we should fight it using microbiology is because if you have to take all of the data of the fossil record, and say look let's look at all the fossil records and sh- i'll show you that macroevolution isn't true it's very difficult it's very unwieldy so here's what i recommend if you're going to deal with somebody that believes in macroevolution if you're and i've used this many times with pilots when i was an airline pilot myself what i always do is show the achilles heel the achilles heel of macroevolution is gradualism gradualism is the mechanism by which macroevolution is possible. And what it basically means is that you have to have a creature that has a mutation that ends up not only having a mutation, but having a beneficial mutation, which enables it to survive versus another animal that does not have that mutation of the same kind, so that it survives in order to pass along that trait. All right, And then if it passes along that trait the animal changes and gradually becomes a new creature. That would be the idea of gradualism. Well, what we're going to show is gradualism isn't possible. Why? Well, because of a theory. This is a theory, but I think it's very sound, called irreducible complexity. What irreducible complexity says is, look, you know, when Darwin put out his theory on the origin of the species, he didn't have an electron microscope. He thought, well, when you look to the cellular level of life... He thought it would be very simple. It is not. It is exceedingly complex. And so the idea of irreducible complexity is that in the basic root of life are complex systems that cannot be reduced or come about gradually. Otherwise, they wouldn't, they wouldn't ex- function at all. They would cease to function. You know, I think we'll have to set up some more chairs. I'm sorry. We got a couple up here. We
0: got
1: one here. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah,
0: but the they maybe have to sit by you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: now, as we're uh, as we're talking, <laughs>
0: you
1: know, as we're, um, as we're talking about irreducible complexity, I think a wonderful way to illustrate this is the mouse trap. Now, let me just explain how this helps us understand the theory of irreducible complexity. Think of a mousetrap as just representing a system in the human body. The mousetrap is irreducibly complex. Why? Because if you get rid of any component, it ceases to function at all. In other words, all the components have to be there together at once, or it doesn't work. So let's look at a mousetrap. Take the wood. No wood. What are you going to nail everything down to? Your, Your smashing bar. It doesn't work. Right? But notice the holding bar. That keeps the smashing bar from smashing the mouse. If you don't have a holding bar, do you have a mouse trap? Nope. What about the spring that puts tension on the smashing bar? If you don't have that, there's no tension on the smashing bar. It's not going to hurt the mouse. It doesn't work. What about the smashing bar? If you didn't have any smashing bar, what's the point? Plus, you need cheese, right? <laughs> so here's the point. If any of those components aren't there, does the mouse trap work? No. So they couldn't have come about gradually, because if one part was missing, it wouldn't function at all. The irreducible complexity says our body's cells are like that. There's functions that are so complex, they couldn't have come about gradually through mutations. All of the components had to be there at once. Otherwise, the system wouldn't work at all. So think about your eye. Let's think about macroevolution. If your eye gradually evolved, think about it at a point in time, it wouldn't function. It would be an opening and it would be an opening that wouldn't cause you to survive. It would be a hindrance to you. Let's say your eye can't see. Is it really helping you at all? No, it's waiting to be punctured. It's going to be a wound, if anything. It's not going to help. So irreducible complexity says no. All these things have to function together at once. So let me give you an example of this. But first of all, I've got to give you a little levity. When I was looking for mouse traps, I found this. <laughs> Look at this little guy. He's going to mission impossible. He's gonna get that cheese. He's gonna beat that irreducibly complex mousetrap. As I found this picture, I thought there must have been some guy who was giving motivational lectures, and his message for the night was "find your cheese," you know. And this was uh, his—this was his role model. But uh, I got a kick out of that. I had to share that with you. But let's talk about design here in microbiology, and I want to use an irreducibly complex system: uh, blood clotting. In fact, Michael Behe, he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. I highly recommend it if anyone has the opportunity to read it. Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe. He is a biochemist, and he um, is the one who has these examples. Now, he calls it an irreducibly complex blood clotting cascade. Why a cascade? Because one event cascades to another to another for blood clotting to work. Now, let's start with blood clotting. Let's start at the simple level of the clot itself. What is a clot comprised of? Well, it's comprised of fibrin. Now, fibrin are these fibrous tissues, hence the name, that form like a mat, and they end up basically clogging your cut so that you don't bleed out once you get a cut on you, or an animal for that matter. Well, where does the fibrin come from? Well, it comes from fibrinogen. Now, here's the problem. Fibrinogen needs to be cut it needs to be cleaved okay so what cleaves or cuts the fibrinogen well of course it's thrombin but the problem is thrombin is the active form but it normally is in its inactive form which is prothrombin so what is it that activates prothrombin into thrombin so that it can cleave or cut our fibrinogen so that we get our fibrin so that we get our clot what could it be well Of course, it's stuart factor. Now, stuart factor is all over our body. It is everywhere. And if it was activated, all of our blood would clot. So that would be a problem. Well, fortunately, stuart factor is always inactive. However, it becomes active when it's activated by accelerant. That's a catalyst. Accelerant, however, is normally in its inactive form pro-accelerant. And so we have to ask ourselves, what... Is it that activates proaccelerin? You won't believe it. It's thrombin. Now, at this point, it seems rather confusing because it seems like you're trying to understand your grandmother's genealogy by asking the granddaughter, right? Which came first, right? Now we have thrombin that gives us accelerin, but Stuart factor gave us pro, you know thrombin, so it seems very confusing. But the key here seems to be Stuart factor. How does that become activated so that it can do all these things? Well. It all begins with a cut. After you have a cut, there's something called Hagman factor. Hagman factor sits on the edge of your cut. It's in your blood, and it will sit there, but it is also in an inactive form unless it is acted upon by a catalyst protein, HMK. HMK turns Hagman factor into, aptly titled, activated Hagman factor. Activated Hagman factor then acts on a protein called pre but that's in an inactive form, so that has to be turned by activated Hagman factor into calicrine. Calicrine then reaches all the way back over and takes Hagman factor and HMK and accelerates the production of something known as PTA, not the parent-teacher association, <laughs> but a very important catalyst that gives us convertin. That interacts with something called Christmas factor and he- anti-hemophiliac. So how many here have heard of a hemophiliac? They're bleeders, aren't they, because they don't have anti-hemophiliac. Okay, so Christmas factor plus anti then activates our Stewart factor, turns it into active form, which turns prothrombin into thrombin, which cleaves our fibrinogen, Giving us fibrin and therefore our clot. Now, my whole point in going into all of that is to show you, wow, right? If one part was missing, would we have any blood clotting at all? Nope. But also, notice here. Let me point something out. Notice once you get this whole thing going, Stuart factor not only gives you prothrombin, which is cleaved the thrombin, which is gives you fibrinogen, etc., etc., but thrombin also gives you proaccelerin, which gives you accelerin, which gives you more Stuart factor. So notice, this whole thing will accelerate. And the body does that naturally, you know, by God's design, to heal the cut. But what shuts it off? In other words, I've just showed you the clotting aspect. Remember, it's equally complex to shut this off once it's begun. So if any of those components were missing, yeah, you might have all this together. But then, as soon as you had a cut, all your blood would clot. You had no way to stop it. So I always tell people, what would you have if you, if you didn't have just a few components, oops, just back up a few. If you didn't have that, you wouldn't have blood clotting. Just a few things missing. You don't have blood clotting. So what does it point to? It points to design. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I think that points to it. So what I want you to think about is we've shown the cosmological argument. Let's do a little bit of review. Remember, our best argument for the existence of God is what? the cosmological argument. Remember, there were four possibilities for the beginning of the universe. What was the first possibility? The universe was an illusion. But how did we refute that? We said, well, wait a minute. If we think something is an illusion, we're doing something. What are we doing? We're thinking. And we know that thinking is doing something. And we know that nothing can't do something. And therefore, we've proven our own existence Therefore, everything can't be an illusion. So we got rid of option one. Option two was that the universe self-created itself. But we said, well, that can't be, because if nothing can exist and not exist at the same time, how can something not exist and then exist to put itself into existence? That violates the law of non-contradiction, so that is irrational. So number two is out. The third option was what? That the universe was eternal, now, how did we rule out an eternal universe? The second law of thermodynamics. How can you have an infinite lifespan of the universe with a finite supply of usable energy? It doesn't work, does it? So we were left with only one option. That was the fourth option. That is, there's an eternal being outside the universe that indeed created it. That's who we call God. Then we went from there to design. And we said, look, we have design in astronomy. We have design in chemistry. We have design in physics. We have design in microbiology. Why? Because there's a designer. That, I think, is powerful evidence. And remember, your job isn't necessarily to persuade. Yes, we want to do that, but our job is to prove. And that's what we've done. We've proven our case. Now it's between that person and God. We've delivered the mail. We've given solid evidence. We've given an answer for those who ask us for the reason that we have the hope within us with gentleness and respect. Okay? Now, what I want to do then is I want to move away from just proving theism, which we've just done oops I'm going to go back to my thing there and I want to talk about how theism is superior to monism now what is monism very quickly monism is synonymous with pantheism which is God is everything so let me just define theism theism we have an eternal God distinct from a non eternal universe okay so you have a God-creation distinction. You have God and you have the creation. They're not the same. God is transcendent over his creation. Now, he's also imminent, as we'll talk about later, but he's transcendent. He is not the creation. Monism, on the other hand, is where God is the universe. Hence the term mono. It's one. There's one unit. You have the universe, and it is God. Now, you can probably guess what the problem might be there we've already proven the universe isn't eternal well if the universe isn't eternal and God is the universe now you have a time that there was nothing Do you see the problem and that's why our refutation of atheism ties in to our refutation of monism you and I as we look at monism we're looking at every single religion in the eastern world without with a few exceptions okay so now we're seeing that look our apologetics that we just did it's not only refuting atheism, it's also refuting what? The Eastern religions as well. Okay, now who holds to monism? Again, monism is synonymous with pantheism. They're identical. Pantheism, pan means all theism is God. Everything is God. Well, Eastern religions, uh, Eastern religions, remember, they are trying to achieve oneness, the people are, with the universe or God, because it's synonymous. So they might do that through the Eightfold Path. They might do it through meditation. They might do it through yoga. But they are trying to become one with God, because everything is God. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to lose the illusion of the physical nature. What about philosophy? Here, I want you to think about how philosophy has been so influenced by pantheism. There was a philosopher named Benedict Spinoza in the 1600s. He was a pantheist. And you might say, well, who cares? He was a pantheist. Great. Well, he had a big effect on a man named Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel said, if you don't believe in Spinoza, or if you don't understand Spinoza, you're not a true philosopher. Now, why is Hegel significant? Well, Hegel ended up becoming a panentheist, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit panentheism is different in that pantheism is everything is God. Panentheism is that God is in everything. Okay, well, Hegel ends up becoming a panentheist. Well, who takes their ideas from Hegel? Karl Marx. Karl Marx now, of course, he's an atheist, but he takes the procedures, the the dialectic from Hegel, and he ends up giving us Marxism. So I want you to see a lot of bad ideas, not just Eastern religions, but a lot of bad ideas have their root in monism. Okay, so when you and I go out there into the world, not only are we fighting atheism, but when we start fighting Marxism, we're really fighting a form of monism. It stems from that. That's where its root is. Okay, number three, the New Age movement. Remember Shirley MacLaine? She stands on the seashore, and what does she say? I am god right i don't know i can't do a shirley McLean voice but i'm sure someone can she's claiming to be god because everything is god and she just wants to make sure that we all know <laughs> right she is god and she wants everybody to know it so now let me show you the problem with monism also known as pantheism the problem is the universe isn't eternal therefore pantheon pantheism's god is not eternal Think about it. If everything is God, the universe is God. But we have already declared that the universe can't be eternal because of the second law of thermodynamics. So now you have a God who is also not eternal, meaning you had at some point a time when there was nothing. Now, remember last week, we already laid the groundwork. One of our principles to refute atheism was, out of nothing, nothing comes. And so what we have to conclude, therefore, is monism is what? It's absurd. It's absurd. Now, I didn't have to take, let's say you're dealing with a Hindu at a bookstore or at a coffee shop. I didn't even have to evaluate any of their other arguments. I know at the very root of their understanding of God that it's absurd. It's absurd. You can't have a time that there was nothing. You'd have nothing now. It's that easy to refute. And so, my prayer is not only can you use this, but I think it gives you great confidence when you go to witness to them. Now, let's talk a little bit about monism and logic. Here is another syllogism for you. Let's take premise one. Any worldview without an eternal being is absurd. Now, let's think about that premise for just a moment. Is that true? I think it's necessarily true. Because think about it. If there was ever a time that there was nothing eternal, that means there was a time that there was nothing. You'd have nothing now. So I think premise one is, by definition, it has to be true. Otherwise, you violate the law of non-contradiction. So we have to affirm premise one is true. Premise two, pantheism is a worldview without an eternal being. Okay? That's premise two. Now, the conclusion, therefore, is pantheism is absurd. It's absurd. Now, I want you to think about how prevalent pantheism and Eastern religions are becoming in the United States. And... As that's occurring, I would say that you see more absurdity. Right becomes wrong. Wrong becomes right. You and I look out in our daily lives and we say, boy, there's just such absurdity going on. That's because it has its root in an absurd worldview. There's a reason why when you look at the Eastern foundations, Eastern nations, they haven't developed oftentimes as far as Western civilization. Why? Why? Because they have a faulted worldview, an absurdity. I had a friend who was an airline pilot. He says, you know, he'd fly in India. He says they're a scheduled air carrier. And he would show up right on time, 1 o'clock. And he says that he surprised them every time. Every time. He says they couldn't get an air carrier to work. He'd fly in right at the appointed time. And he goes, they were surprised again. They have a harder time getting things organized. Why? Because it's an absurd worldview. Now you have brilliant people. It's not that. I'm not claiming that people who are in India or somewhere else aren't brilliant, but there's a reason why Western civilization thrived because it had a worldview based on rationality. And rationality gave us the enlightenment. It gave us scientific reasoning. Okay? So just something to think about. Now, the laws of logic. Here's what's going to happen. If you say to a Hindu or someone in an Eastern religion, look, your worldview is absurd, they're gonna push back and what they're typically gonna say to you is you if you say look your worldview is absurd they will say to you you only say that because you hold to a Western form of logic and your Western logic doesn't work with my Eastern worldview and so they'll claim to have a different system of logic let me assure you this evening that there is only one type of logic okay And I'll also say this, logic was not invented by Aristotle, nor Eric Dahlman, nor Bob DeWay, nor R.C. Sproul, or any other Westerner. Logic was invented by God. He created it, men discovered it. And I'll show you that you can't get around the laws of logic, so you cannot allow a Hindu or anyone else to say, well, that's your logic, I have my own. They believe, yes, perhaps in one hand clapping, but it's still absurd. Okay, so let me show you the laws of logic. First of all, the primary law of logic is the law of non-contradiction. If A, then not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. The second law, the law of identity, A is A. This podium is a podium. So anytime we name something and you know, label a category, we're using the second law of logic. Very simple. Third law of logic the law of excluded middle, either A or non-A. Now, the problem with a Hindu or anyone else in a modest worldview trying to get rid of it is think about this. You must use these laws in order to try to get rid of them. Think about it. When they say, well, I don't believe in the law of non-contradiction, they're using the law of identity. They're saying this law. The law of identity says A is A. They're labeling it. And as soon as they've labeled anything that they disagree with, they're using the law of identity. Now. You can also say that they're using the law of non-contradiction because if they say to you the law of non-contradiction does not exist and you say to them, oh, I understand, you're saying it exists. Well, they would say, well, no, of course it doesn't exist. They would say, you're saying it exists, I'm saying it doesn't exist. That's what they would say to you. What are they really doing? They're using the law of non-contradiction. It can't exist and not exist at the same time in the same relationship. So in order to get rid of the law of non-contradiction, they're having to use it. And as our friend Norman Geisler said, anytime you have to use something in order to deny that it exists, you don't have a very good case, right? (laughs) So what we've just shown then is there's no way of getting around the laws of logic. There's no way. They're inviolable. They come from God. Aristotle merely discovered what God had created. I think that's reason enough to celebrate but think about also in john 1:1, who is jesus called the logos isn't he he's he's the word he's the the logic so that's where it all comes from so what we're just simply showing is no you can't get around logic therefore you can't get around the case that monism is absurd now i want to deal with dressed up absurdity what we've just shown is atheism is absurd because you have to either have an eternal universe or a universe that self-created itself. Both are impossible. Monism, all the Eastern religions are impossible because you would have to have a God that's not eternal, and there would be a time that there was nothing. But there is a way that these people will try to get around the idea that nothing can do something. They'll try to claim that nothing can do something, and they'll use quantum physics to do it. So I'm going to show you how quantum physics is often used by heretics today. Let me just explain why. Eastern religions use it. Why would Eastern religions or emerging church people want to use quantum physics? Emerging church people are built off of post-modernity. Post-modernity is the idea that you can't know something. It's unknowable. Truth is unknowable. You don't have access to it. And so what they believe is that at the quantum level of physics... There's unknowability, and I'll explain why in a moment. Okay, who else uses quantum physics? Well, atheists do, because at the quantum level, they try to claim that quantum mechanics teaches that nothing can do something. Okay, we'll show you that that's not true. Number three, open theists like quantum physics. Why? Because you have unknowability at the quantum level. If you have unknowability, then what they claim, and I know... Um, who's our open theist friend in the Twin Cities here, Greg Boyd, he would say that unknowability at the quantum level gives an indication that that's how God created the world, that there's unknowability. So what is quantum mechanics? Why does it supposedly give them this? Well, I'm going to give you a quote from a man named Timothy Ferris. He's one of the leading scientific writers in the 20th century, and he explains what the quantum leap is about. So if you ever wondered, what is the quantum leap and why do people appeal to quantum mechanics so that they can try to prove that nothing can do something or that there's unknowability? Well, here, listen to what Timothy Ferris writes. This is a book called Coming of Age in the Milky Way. This is what the quantum leap is. He says this, quote, When a photon strikes an atom, boosting an electron into a higher orbit, the electron moves from the lower to the upper orbit instantaneously without having traversed the intervening space, unquote. Now, a lot of you are sitting there saying, I don't know quantum physics. I don't either. But here's what the quantum leap was. Notice this, the, the highlighted red portion. He says, without having traversed the intervening space. What this Timothy Ferris is saying is that you had one electron that went from one orbit to another orbit. And it seemingly disappeared and then reappeared. And so that's the quantum leap. And so what you had were really smart physicists who said it traveled by chance. Now, as soon as they used the term chance, what had they done? They had dressed up absurdity. Because chance has no being. Chance is merely a word that describes mathematical probability. So when you had Niels Bohr or Werner Heisenberg, how many have heard of Heisenberg's indeterminacy principle? That's what he's referring to is this quantum leap. He's saying that it happened by chance. And all of a sudden, they ascribe causal power to chance. Well, Einstein understood the ramifications of that, and he stood against it. In fact, he said, God, remember the famous saying, God does not play dice with the universe. The reason why he said that is he knew that he couldn't have an uncaused effect. If there was ever a time that there was nothing... You'd have nothing now. Nothing cannot do something. And chance is just dressed up what? Nothing. It has no being. That's what they're trying to use quantum mechanics for. Now, let me tell you a story. I'm at seminary, and we're supposed to be studying theology. We have a student in the seminary who's an open theist. Why does he like the quantum leap? Because supposedly it proves that there's unknowability. You have these electrons that are popping in and out. You don't always know where. Uh, You have equations for it, but there's some randomness to where they appear. So the point is they like that. They like the idea of unknowability. Now, let me just say this. The limitations in quantum mechanics are our observation, our observational ability. We can't ever say that nothing can do something, okay? So I told that this man, he said, well, look, at the quantum level, you have unknowability. Therefore, I think that gives great credence to open theism. And I had to say to him, no, what the quantum leap is about is nothing doing something. You say that it happened by chance, chance is nothing, and nothing can't do something. And he protested in class. He says, well, it's got to be more complex than that. And I said, no, it's not. And so one thing I realized is I remember studying Greek, and I thought as I learned that language, I sure wish I would have listened to my English teacher more and learned more about English, right? But what I started to realize is a language is a language is a language. If a mathematician learns math, it's a language. If a physicist learns physics, it's a language. If someone speaks to me in Chinese, I may not understand them, but I know that if I could understand the Chinese language, I still can't allow him to utter absurdity. If someone says in Chinese that nothing can do something, it's every bit as absurd even if I can't understand it. And so if someone speaks the language of physics, I speak the language of flying. If I say I'm going to go hold at the NDB and I'm going to do an ILS down to minimums at a 200 DH, nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. It's a language. But if you spend five minutes and learn the lingo, you'd know it too. We all have languages, but at whatever language we're speaking, we can never have a time that nothing can do something. It's that simple. And so don't let any buffle, anyone buffalo you say, well, I know physics and you don't. It doesn't matter. Nothing can ever do something, no matter what level of science you're talking about. Amen. And so that's what I think we have to conclude. Dressed-up absurdity is still absurd. And so, again, well, what are we left with? Nothing can't do something. Atheism is absurd. All Eastern religions are absurd. And so, again, our arguments that we used against atheism rule out all these false religions. Okay, now I want to move on. I want to talk about, I think we've got time for this confusion over the biblical view of God. And so I want to start transitioning now to talk about who God is and show you how his person is being distorted today as our nation starts to think more akin or alike to the Eastern religions. First of all, theism, what we mean by theism is that God is, of course, immanent. And that he's also transcendent. He's both. But we also know in theism that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, isn't he? All right? Well, when we look at pantheism, they believe that all is God. And I think most Christians are able to see the distinction. They say, yes, theism, you have a distinction between God and the creation. Even though God is everywhere, most Christians can say, yes, God is not the creation. Pantheism, they say, well, That's a different belief because God and the creation are one. Most Christians are able to understand that, but where we're having trouble, Bob and I will attest to this, is in the area of panentheism. Panentheism is more sneaky because now you have God not being everything, but He is in all things. So God is in this table, He's in the podium. And do you see how a Christian could misunderstand omnipresence where God is everywhere and get it confused with God is in everything? Do you see how slight that seems to many people? Now, let me just show you a passage here. This is from Psalm 139. This is what David wrote. This is a great passage to show the omnipresence of God. Psalm 139, 8 through 10, David says, if I ascend to heaven... He's talking about the Lord. He says, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So notice all the references here to wherever David went. What does he say to the Lord? He says, you are there. But notice David doesn't say that the Lord is Sheol or that he is heaven but he's there. That's omnipresence. Okay, so panentheism would be declaring that God actually is in those things. David doesn't say that he's in those things. He says he's there. Okay, so there's still this distinction then between God and the creation that panentheism has indeed lost. Now, let me talk about a writer that Bob has reviewed. There's a gal named Ann Voskamp And she says this in her book, 1,000 Gifts. She's a panentheist. She talks about an inner eye. She says, my inner eye has God seeping through all things. Then I can't give thanks. I'm sorry. She says, then can't I give thanks for anything or everything, unquote. Notice she says that God is seeping through all things. What she's confusing is God's omnipresence with what? with God being in everything. That's what she believes. And so she believes that she can give glory to God, not because he's everywhere and that he protects her, but because God is somehow in the chair, in the wood, in whatever it is. So things end up becoming divine, don't they? Right? So the inability to distinguish theism and pantheism is absolutely disastrous. That's what we see in vogue today in our culture today. Now, let me just explain some of the problems. I want you to think about those who hold to panentheism that God is in all things, some of the ramifications. If this is true, then God can be found in nature. Now, notice I, don't, I agree that God can be found from nature. God created all things, and we see his handiwork. It all declares his glory But they're saying something different, that God is in nature. Now, think about that. If God can be found in nature, if he is here, or if he's in the leaves as I'm walking out, why do I need the Bible? Why in the world do I need this special revelation? Why don't I just go on a walk in the leaves, and I'm going to have a contact with God because he's there, every but as much as I have with the divine revelation? And so you see, you and I, we go out and witness, and we say, you must believe the Word of God. Well, why does this generation who is panentheistic, why would they take us seriously? Why go through all the hard work when they can just go roll around in the leaves and have an experience where they get to meet God? And in fact, they would say that's far more intimate than reading. That's what they're saying. Number two, the profane and the holy is synonymous. Now, what is holy? Let's define that for just a moment. Holy is Hagias. We've had somewhat of a debate in our church circles about sanctification. Sanctification comes from the term hagias or the verb hagiazzo. Okay? Now, hagias has to do with being set apart. God is holy in that he is set apart from his creation. He is different. He is morally different and he is different in kind. You and I are called to be holy. We're called to be different. And God commands us to be about His business. And as we are about His business, what He has commanded, we are being holy. We are being set apart. So, for example, you and I, one of the things we're called to do, we looked at this last week in 1 Peter 3.15, is we are called to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, aren't we? Jude 3, we're called to contend for the faith. You and I, to be set-apart people, those who are holy we have to give a rational defense for the faith. We're called to that. But you see, if every single thing is holy, in the, see, if everything is God, if this chair is God, then if I sit in it, I can have a holy experience. If the liberal who is trying to s- sign up people to vote for Al Franken, if God is in everything, well, then helping sign up people to vote for Al Franken is a holy experience. There's no difference between the ordinary and the holy. This is why the emerging church calls themselves missional. Jesus Christ no longer defines what you do to be set apart. What you do is you go out into the world because God is in that world, and you find out what they're doing, and you simply join in. Why? Because it's all holy. So if some little boy is making a painting, you join in, that's holy. If you change a diaper, holy, play baseball, it's holy. There is no distinction between the holy and the profane. None. And so church radically is different. That's why you hear people say, well, I'm not really against God per se, but I'm not religious. I just don't like organized religion. You'll hear them say that. But what they really are having a hard time doing is differentiating between the holy and the profane what they're called out to do by God and what they imagine in their minds. That's when I think of the ramifications over that confusion. Number three, humans are no different than animals. If God is in everything, well, human beings made in the image of God is not unique. And so there you have, for instance, remember PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals? They had an article once that talked about the Holocaust on your plate, If you eat chicken, there's a holocaust. Why? Well, because God is in the animal just as he's in you. There's no distinction. That's why you have Adolf Hitler. He would treat his German shepherd really well, and then he'd lead the Jews off to the the gas chamber. There's no difference. Nature will be worshipped every time. Panentheism and pantheism is deemed to be true. They worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. Number five, Christ's uniqueness is attacked. Christ is the incarnation. The Son, who existed from all eternity as God, humbled himself and became a man. So God came down. But if God is in everything, well, what's so unique about Christ? So we say, wait, wait, we have to preach Christ. Those in the emerging church say, well, what's so special about him? God is in everything anyway. Now, I think most would still try to say there's something unique about Christ, but think about the, ramifications of it. Number six, the word of God is replaced by general revelation. That ties into number one. If God is in everything, why do you need the special revelation? You can go out on a starry night or roll in the leaves, and you can know God. That's the ramifications, I think, of the Christian not being able to distinguish between panentheism and theism. Brothers and sisters, what this means is when you go out to witness... Theism is something that you have to prove. In the 1950s, if you went out and preached the gospel, I think the assumption, the ethos of the age was such that the majority of the people that you would witness to, even if they were unbelievers, when you talked about God, they knew that there was a distinction between God and the creation. You no longer have people that necessarily have that presupposition. Now when you say that God is angry with their sin... They may be thinking, well, this is angry with my sin. The leaves are angry with my sin. That squirrel is angry with my sin. God is in everything, and none of this seems to be very angry with me. They've lost fear with any transcendent God. And so you and I, when we go out to witness, we have to remember that part of our pre-evangelism is we have to show that panentheism, pantheism, atheism, all of these things are absurd. And we have to lay the groundwork all anew for theism. Only theism allows us to be rational. Now, I didn't hit deism. If anyone's still concerned about deism, you can ask me that later. We can talk about deism. But I'll show you deism's absurd as well. I don't want to spend the time here. Most people aren't deist anymore. If that were an issue, we'd hit it here as well. Theism is the only way to be rational. Now, I want to leave you with a passage that talks about the irrationality of people who reject God. Romans 1, 20 through 22, notice Paul says here, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that what? They are without excuse. Let's stop there for a moment. What verse 20 is saying is that we can truly know who God is through the created order, so that all people are without excuse. Okay, so you and I then can take the natural revelation and say, look, there must be a God. But we also have to remember that natural revelation only brings people so far. How do people become saved? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have to go to the special revelation. General revelation gives you enough rope to hang yourself. Because notice what they do every time. Verse 21 says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him. That's universal. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. It's foolishness to be an atheist. It's foolish to be a pantheist. It's foolish to be a to be a panentheist. Why? Well, look at what they end up doing, verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Dear ones, theism is rational. Atheism, unbelief, panentheism, it's all irrational. And it leads people astray to serve and to worship the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. Now, one thing I want to point out, why do people worship the creation rather than the creator? It's not simply an intellectual argument, is it? They are morally biased against God. Jesus says in John 3, 19, he says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. So the idea is even when you bring natural revelation to them and show them the obvious nature of God's existence, his divine power, and his divine attributes. They'll want to hide from that. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So as you and I present our apologetic to these people, our evidence and our rational logic, we have to remember they're biased against it because they know their sins are evil. Their deeds are evil. Now, what do they do then with their evil deeds? Well, they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. What are you and I called to do? In the scriptures, Paul says, remember in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because we are the people who see a distinction between the creator and the creation. And unfortunately, brothers and sisters, that is a category that's going by the wayside, not just in the culture, but at the church at large in our nation today. So with that, I'm going to stop, and I want to af- have you ask any questions or give any comments that you feel are important or necessary, or even fun. <laughs> Does anybody have any thoughts or questions? Yeah, Brian. Well, I'm going to shut this off.
0: Hold on a second. But no, don't even shut it off. Oh, okay. Give me the mic. Oh, that's a good idea. Jeez, I can carry this as easy uh, as <laughs> a That's all right, all right.
1: I have a comment on the uh, irreducible complexity.
0: Within the human body, we know that there's uh, uh, m- multiple things that we could point to in that, but one of my favorites is the uh,
1: gastrointestinal system. And you, if you say what came first, the stomach lining or the gastrointestinal juices, uh, the, the gastrointestinal juices would tear a hole through this tabletop. But God created the stomach lining to withstand that. So if you had just the stomach lining and no juices, you would eat, eat,
0: eat, and you'd blow up. And if you, and if it was the other way around, the intestinal juices would just eat your whole body up. So. That's awesome. That's
1: great. You I, I shared that with me a couple weeks ago. I thought that was dynamite. Thank you. Yeah. Well said. Excellent. Um, yeah. I can't build off of that. You know, it's funny though, if people listen to us, they may be grossed out. <laughs> <laughs> All these <bodily> things. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, anybody else have any comments?
0: Oh, yeah. It's just a question. Is this the right thing? This is the bite part on oh, your okay. thumb. Uh, you had talked about that book, not a chance, and I had gotten that and had given it to my physics nephew. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any other books like that. I mean, that was so excellent. Yeah, really. S- so I don't know if you have anything else. That-
1: um, you know, I don't. There's a lot of. Um, I've read like Lee Strobel's Case for a Trader. That's very well done. <clears throat> um, there's a, there's a lot of good reads out there. That to me is an exceptionally good one. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, one of the problems with scientists today is they may be trained well in their particular field, but oftentimes their philosophical <clears throat> skills aren't so good. So for instance, you'll have Niels Bohr who was involved with quantum physics or a man like Werner Heisenberg, very brilliant men, but yet they end up making a simple error where they end up ascribing causal power to nothing, right? They have nothing doing something. And so a trained philosopher should see that and say, "Well, no, you can't have an uncaused effect." And so they would throw. It's like um, the laws of logic are like the referee in a football game: fifteen-yard penalty, irrational thought, you know, third down, you know, repeat third down. You know what I mean? That's what that's what logic does. And but if you don't have people that are trained in that, you can have scientists making all sorts of absurd claims. In fact, um, let me give you an example. Uh, P.Z. Myers. Remember P.Z. Myers? I mentioned him last week. Well, I go to debate him. He's an atheist. I go to the Atheist Convention with my friend Jeff Ramke, and I put him in this quandary. I make it quicker than the four steps. I just say, look, without a creator, you have two possibilities. Either the universe self-created itself, or it's eternal. It can't self create itself. That's irrational. And it can't be eternal because that violates the second law of thermodynamics. So you're either unscientific, you violate the second law of thermodynamics, or you're irrational. Which do you want to be? Well, I was stunned by P.Z. Myers. I thought for sure he'd go after the second law of thermodynamics. He went after the law of logic. He said the law of non-contradiction, that only applies to you Christians. You guys are the only ones that think that that's... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I knew that would get a rise out of Bob. I bet your blood pressure is (laughs) almost through the (laughs) roof. Well, why did he say that? Because he said, well, don't you know at the quantum level... Nothing can do something. He bought into Heisenberg's idea, and that's why we wanted to attack it here. So all of that is in that book. Not a chance by R. C. Sproul. He's able to get into far greater detail than I can get in in a, a class. So oh. yeah,
0: and I mean, and also just to know that this, how current all this is. I was debating Doug Paget, and it came up. Yeah, and in one of our conferences. Uh, back at the old church, yeah. I dealt with Rob Bell's um, DVD, Everything is Spiritual. Oh, and he was making that same argument. Yeah. Yeah. Because certain things we don't know at the subatomic level proves that everything's spiritual. Excuse yeah. <coughs> yeah. me. But the so fact true. is, you can't walk through this wall. Right. It's very much material. Right. Right. And so I sent his a clip of his... Abuse of uh, quantum physics to this physicist in Australia that I met, Doctor Stutman. Yeah. He sent back a rebuttal and said Bell doesn't even know what he's talking about. His categories are wrong. He doesn't understand physics, right. and so on and so forth. So don't be wowed by these things. Yeah. And and Bell also said everything is holy. Exactly the same So he's thing. making all these errors. Yep. And I wrote an article about that and said, well, if everything's holy, then nothing's profane. Exactly. And it's just absurd. Yeah. But this yeah. is what's all around us in the church. Exactly. In the church. How in the world are the worldly people going to come to faith right. if the church is believing in yoga and everything spiritual and right. quantum? Lies.
1: Yeah, quantum lies. Yeah, I mean,
0: literally. Exactly. It, it's so. Yep. Thank you, Eric. I, well, I don't think God, this, this real is real. excellent material.
1: Well, I hope it's helpful. Thank um, you. Yeah, one thing I want to point out um, I just wanted to give a caveat. When you do talk to a Hindu and you say, look, your worldview is absurd because you have a God who is the universe and the universe is not eternal, they will push back against that. And typically their rebuttal is, well, We believe that the universe is really an illusion. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that everything physical, including the universe, is an illusion leaves you with really only God who, therefore, is eternal. Well, you don't let them get away with that because, remember, Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore, I am. If you and I are doubting that we exist, we're doing something. And remember, nothing can't do something. So, therefore, we've proven our own existence. And as soon as you've proven your existence, and you're not God, you're outside of that, well, now you are no longer an illusion. You have to be dealt with. So here's their problem fundamentally. If they have a finite God who's mixed in with an infinite universe, well, now you have, because remember they're one, you have a God who is both infinite and finite at the same time and in the same relationship. Well, what have you just violated? The law of non contradiction. So it's absurd. So no matter what they try to do, they have an absurd worldview. Is everybody with me on that?
0: Yeah, but that that explains something, though. You could say. Uh, Why they're trying to practice this meditative technique. I read two or three books by Eckhart Tolle, who is uh, Oprah's darling. Right. Well, the whole point of his meditation is to get to where there's a gap where you're not thinking. That's right. Okay, so (laughs) if I think, therefore I am. So you get to the gap by Eastern meditation, all thought ceases. That's when he said you're present. Wow. So at that point, you're God unsullied by all the illusions.
1: Yes. You've reached the oneness.
0: Yeah, and so... You can see where this is all at. The alternative would be to believe the gospel.
1: (laughs) Which is very simple.
0: (laughs) Yeah, amen.
1: And and logical, yeah. Amen. Thank you, Bob.